tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Let's make a deal. This morning, we hear from House Speaker Scott Psyche about an offer on the table that is being mulled over by trustees of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. It brings a possible resolution to the dilemma of whether to allow residential development, Makai of Ala Moana Boulevard. Psyche's priority uh, is to preserve open space and public access uh, to that last bit of shoreline in urban Honolulu. We talked to him this morning about the compromise offer to make things right with OHA, to make things Pono. As you know, the Kakaku area, the Alamana area, has just seen an inundation of high-rise buildings and other kinds of commercial activities. And, you know, my feeling is that the public want to minimize that kind of development. It's important for us to maintain places like Kakaku Makai that give the public access to the ocean, to the surf, to park space. And I believe that we can work with OHA to develop a plan to do that. So the proposal basically includes four parts. And the first is to pay OHA $100 million for an easement over their nine parcels at Kakakumakai. The easement would require that there be no residential development. In other words, we would continue the current state law, but it would allow OHA to use those parcels in ways that are currently authorized by law. And that's basically commercial development up to 200 feet. That's the current law. SOHA would retain the right to do that. They would also retain the right to transfer, to exchange, to sell any of their parcels at Kakako Makai if they want to do that. On the second part of the bill, would appropriate $100,000 to the Department of Land and Natural Resources to complete an inventory of public land in Hawaii, which is important for OHA because OHA has always felt that the public land inventory in Hawaii is not complete. And then the third part of the proposal would adjust the public land trust payment that is made to OHA on an annual basis. The public land trust payment is supposed to represent 20% of the revenue that is obtained through the use of ceded land in Hawaii. Currently, the annual payment is $21.5 million a year. OHA has always felt that they were being shortchanged with this payment. So the proposal is to increase the annual payment $25 million per year and then to adjust it every year after that using the CPI index. So there would be an annual adjustment that would compound going forward for that payment. The fourth part would be an appropriation to pay for the repairs to the wharf at Kakakumakai. The cost of the repairs is $65 million. Well, it sounds like a lot of thought has gone into this to try and make it right to balance the needs of the public, the broader public, and then also the needs of OHA and its mission. Yeah, I met with them on Friday. I've not received a response yet. My understanding is that the OHA trustees are meeting today and tomorrow. And is there a time clock on this? Well, the legislative session calendar is basically the time clock right now. We are running out of time. Is the deadline for our committees to hear bills and to move bills out is tomorrow. So if we receive a late response from OHA that accepts this proposal, then we'll have to find a way procedurally to see how we can accommodate this. And you could suspend those internal rules if need be. Right. We could suspend rules. We could or suspend procedures. There's different ways for us to approach it. But again, it just depends on how many days are left in the session. We're scheduled to end on May 4. So time is of the essence. Would there be a need to go into a special session? You know, that is another option, depending upon the timing of OHA's response and the agreement of both the Senate and the House. We may need to trigger a special session, but again, it's just a matter of timing. You know, this idea of an easement, I mean, that was something that lawmakers took up to deal with the lands up on the North Shore. So, I mean, it's a viable option. Easements are a common tool that's used to preserve open space. And you're right, about 10 years ago, the legislature approved funds to purchase an easement at Turtle Bay. And that was to keep land open and to stop proposed development of Turtle Bay land. And so the same concept applies here. The easement would apply to the Kakako Makai parcels. It would basically restrict residential housing, but it would allow OHA to continue with any of its current authorized uses, which are basically commercial uses. But the point of the easement would be to preserve open space, to preserve viewplanes. 
And we've heard OHA talk about their need to provide housing for their people, but the way the law is structured, we can't carve that out for Hawaiians only, right? I mean, that's something if DHHL was involved, perhaps. I mean, this was a, a right. conversation that lawmakers have had now for, I don't know, a decade or more. Right. You know, I have to admit that I'm so confused about OHA's housing plan for Kakaku Makai. OHA says that it wants to build affordable housing that will benefit Hawaiian people. And I'm not sure what they mean by affordable. In other words, I'm not sure what the cost of the affordable housing would be. I'm also not sure how they will be able to restrict or give preference to Hawaiians to purchase those units because federal law doesn't allow anyone to discriminate based on race. So I'm just really not clear about the housing plan. Also, when this began, OHA's position was that it wanted to build residential towers at 400 feet. Then they reduced it to 350 feet, and now they're at 200 feet. So I'm just really not sure what the exact plan or proposal is for affordable housing at Kakakumakai. So do you think the argument is what, just a, a red herring? Well, I'm not sure if it's a red herring. I'm sure that OHA wants to build affordable housing. I'm just not sure if that will ever happen because, for one thing, the cost of affordable housing will be pretty high, and I'm not sure if OHA will be able to make that investment. Now, this deal would need the buy-in of the Senate as well. Right. So what I made clear to OHA was that my proposal speaks on behalf of the House. It does not represent the views of the Senate, and I don't know what the Senate thinking about this proposal. I thought it was important for the House to present a proposal to OHA since we did not hear the bill that would have lifted the restriction on residential development. Right. You wanted to give them something. Right. All right. And so we will see what happens in the next 24, 48 hours. I guess that will drive the next step. Yep. We'll see what happens. All right. Well, thank you so much, Speaker. I really appreciate it. And yeah, it just sounds like they do have something on the table that's, you know, reasonable and lots of pluses, potentially. So we'll just see if they buy into it. If I could just add one more thing, Kathy, sure. which is that my feeling is that the OHA trustees have a fiduciary duty to seriously consider this proposal because this proposal will benefit OHA beneficiaries, not just now, but also in the long term. And it will bring resources to the OHA Trust, you know, that will benefit Hawaiians going forward. That was a conversation we had with House Speaker Scott Psyche this morning about a compromise offer that he made to OHA trustees Friday. It was made public this week. It offers $100 million for a conservation easement on the Kaka'akomakai lands to prevent residential development. It also uh, ensures additional opportunities for OHA to receive increased funds for its beneficiaries going forward. The proposal still needs Senate buy-in. OHA said it is holding off on comments until its meeting tomorrow where trustees will get a chance to fully discuss the offer. Support for HPR comes from BAMP Project, presenting bluegrass and alternative rock singer-songwriter John Butler from Australia, performing at 7 p.m. Friday, April 14th at Hawaii Theatre. Tickets at BAMPproject.com. Hey there, it's Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look into the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily, Monday through Thursday at 1.30, here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakawone.com.
Today's Reality Check takes a look at our state's mental well-being with the story about shortages of services on the neighbor islands. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbin on the line today. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. So, yeah, we have a shortage of psychiatrists uh, throughout the state. Um, yes, we do, particularly those that can treat uh, children. Um, there's there's just very few and far between. There's a variety of reasons behind that, but ultimately it means that there's just very long waiting lists for um, parents or caregivers of children who need these services. Um, so, yes, I... I can talk more about it, or do you have any specific questions? Well, you know, I think your story uh, uh, shares some heartbreaking stories. Uh, you know, there was the family on Lanai. You know, a lot of these uh, places in the rural areas where, uh, you know, it's really difficult to have a, a full-time psychiatrist there. Yeah, so families have to rely on telehealth, um, which can be really challenging for children in particular who you know, sometimes <clears throat> have short attention spans or, you know, respond better to sort of tactile forms of therapy, you know, whether it's art therapy or sand trays or whatnot. So, um, you know, it, it's just a, a bleak picture um, and there's a growing demand for these services. Um, you know, there's some, been some recent reports that have come out that, um, you know, shine a light on just the, the growing mental health crisis um, in our country. Uh, particularly amongst adolescents and adolescent teens in particular, well, or adolescent girl teens, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, your, your story talks about, you know, just the numbers that we lack, right, on the neighbor islands. You said Maui only had two full-time, three part-time child psychiatrists. Kauai had one, uh, and Big Island only has one child psychiatrist and who's not accepting new patients. So that's very sad. Yeah, I mean, it it really can take um, a long time to get into C1. Um, I did a story a few months ago, actually, with uh, that looked at the fentanyl crisis, and there was a mom that I featured um, whose daughter um, had been having mental health struggles and tried to get in to see the one child psychiatrist on the island of Hawaii, and and uh, you know the appointment got canceled because of staffing shortages. Um, the girl ended up overdosing on fentanyl couple weeks later it, it was just a just sim- symbolic of just how dire the need is for for more mental health resources not just from psychiatrists but you know there's a shortage of clinical social workers there's a shortage of marriage and family therapists um you know th- there's just a shortage in general of master's level people um and you know there's there's just various things that are going on to try to address it uh there is a bill in the legislature right now that would make it a little bit easier for um, kids um, who have just graduated with their master's degree to to bill insurance. Um, that, that's kind of a complicated topic, but, you know, one of the barriers to becoming a therapist is that you can't just, you know, do the master's, you know, graduate and hang up a shingle. You have to work for like one to two years uh, under the supervision of a licensed um, practitioner before you can bill insurance. So some people can't afford to do that because they can only those those folks can only accept uh, cash pay clients, or they do they do the work for free. And there's not that many people that can, that can do that, especially if you're, you know, paying off your student loans. So so this bill that's moving through the legislature would set up a an associate licensing degree um, or associate license program so that new master's level graduates could actually start billing insurance right away and then collecting payments and that would hopefully attract more people into the profession than currently are. Um, There's also an effort to try to expand the counseling program at University of Hawaii Hilo. Currently, they can only accept about 20% of applicants because um, they don't have the faculty. Um, And so there's a proposal to try to get some more money from the legislature to be able to hire some more faculty so that they can expand that program. Yeah, lots of uh, things we need to do. Uh, Sadly, no quick fix. But thank you so much, Paula. Yeah, I appreciate your uh, asking me to talk about it. Yes. Well, that was reporter Paula Dobbin with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read her story on this very important issue, head to civilbeat.org.
So how are we doing? How is our collective mental state these days? You know, we continue talking about this uh, on our Log View segment. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us to ponder this question. How are we doing? How are our kids doing? Our kids, especially Gen Z uh, adolescents, are doing considerably worse than they were uh, prior to the year 2010 or so. Uh, the change was very uh, sudden, and the, ra- the rise in adolescent anxiety and depression rates has been quite substantial. Uh, the increase in self-harm rates and psychiatric hospitalizations have been quite substantial. There have been other race, you know, increases, um, but the increases are much larger for girls than they are for boys. And this is a more of a Gen X problem. People say, well, we've gone through a bunch of tough years and everybody's suffering. But the change in these kinds of anxiety and depression rates are are much more significant for Gen Z for than they are for any other group. Today, is a, I'm basing this on a piece written by the psychologist Jonathan Haidt and one of his uh, colleagues, uh, Zach Rausch, uh, about this kind of thing. And, and so what they found is what I just said to you about the United States is also true in what they call the Anglosphere countries. New Zealand, Canada, Great Britain, Australia show the same kinds of sudden increase starting at the same time. And that's really significant here because what Haidt then began to look at, and this is part of a longer study, and he's writing a book about it, and what they did was first they found in the U.S., what's going on? You know, it, and they found it started at a certain time. This is not a gradual increase. Something happened around 2012 or so, 10 to 12, and after that, things began to increase. You know, when you do social science, when you're talking about real human beings, it's hard to find something that's a very definitive explanation. Their tentative definitive explanation is the impact of the flip phone, the impact of social, not the flip phone, excuse me, the smartphone, where uh, social media began to change very dramatically, especially for, I don't know, what do you want to call Gen Z? Kids, they're not adults, they're not kids, they're, they're Gen Zs. We all went through it. And we'll get back to that cause in a second. But the important thing is that whatever this situation was, it doesn't appear to be just an American phenomenon. Whatever the pressures of COVID or school or anything else was, those things, remember, this started before COVID, well before COVID. COVID maybe exaggerated the rates a little bit, and we know kids didn't do as well as, say, older adults in this. But something happened then, and their argument is what essentially happened then. The definitive explanation is the, the impact of this kind of social media, things like the like button, uh, which spread things, and things like the smartphone, which gave you all kinds of access and gave you all kinds of opportunities to do bad things to yourself. Uh, it turns out that there's a higher depression rate among people who use it a lot. So that's where it stands. Uh, Height is one. Height's research is very open. It literally, is very open. He's always willing to be challenged. But what's significant is how sudden that change was, how much it goes beyond the conventional explanations about certain American traumas or even certain traumas, not COVID, not the pressure of school, and how significant that could be. So when you listen to Paula's last story about the lack of services, which is certainly an issue and certainly one to work about, there is this parallel issue which seems to be what is precipitating this. And the if they're right, and I lean in their direction, it's a tough one because what do you do? How do you mitigate the negative impact of um, this kind of social media? Well, you know, we just had on the uh, uh, state attorney general, uh, Ann Lopez, and the yeah. Hawaii just joined that lawsuit over TikTok yep. and concern about the mental health of our teens, you know. And, and we all saw how crazy TikTok took off during during COVID and the concern about, you know, um, about our young people and what's happening to them. 
Oh, I think that's right. There are a couple of things I would say about that. First of all, is is remember, TikTok becomes the the, the what the icing on already destructive cake, right? This didn't start with TikTok, as I've said right here, that it, it happened in other places. The second thing is, of course, we turn toward the legal system and the political system for a solution, but that doesn't mean there is an easy solution if this is true. It's the state of Utah, the legislature just uh, passed a bill which tries to prohibit or significantly regulate the access of younger people to certain kinds of social media. And the real question is, how is that going to be enforced? And there is part of that is legal, part of that is technical, and part of it is, what a big surprise, you tell a kid he can't do something or she can't do something, especially if they're technologically savvy, they'll figure out a way. So we may be looking at a phenomenon here that is quite um, powerful and on something that has become quite pervasive. Now, I'm using the term may there, but I want to say that as social science, this is, a, this is strong stuff. You know, and, and if you have, uh, you know, a young person in your family, you know, your, your, your daughter, your son, yeah. your grandchild, uh, yeah, it's like you want to tell them to put the phone down, go out for a run. Oh, absolutely. Do something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you also say, listen, you got enough in your life about, you know, gossip and bullying and all kinds of stuff. Um, you, you, you don't necessarily have to add to this, but you understand, again, you're back, <laughs> like, Remember when your kids were teenagers, how many times you told them something and what percentage of the time they actually did it, uh, even if they're good kids, which yeah. I'm sure yours and mine <laughs> were, right? Yeah. But it's it, it becomes one of those things to try to use. Um, you know, so on the one hand, you need... You need a whole lot of, uh, there is a shortage of therapists at the same time that there's there's demand for it. But at the same time, you're talking about a pretty complicated phenomenon to try to regulate here. Pay attention to the research that's going to come out here. I think it's, um, he's going to write two or three books. And he also says this is a threat to liberal democracy, as a matter of fact, that you know, uh, you talk about how um, these uh, authors say there's about too much emphasis on Sheltering our children from yeah, discomfort yeah, yeah. and risk. Yeah. So oh, yeah. That's I, uh, I. I wrote a piece for Civil Beat a few weeks ago saying, you know what? If you look at who the risk takers are in society, they tend to be old people because um, if a lot of this data that we're talking about with kids here and other kinds of data, um, kids seem to be. This is hard to believe. More risk averse about all kinds of things, including. Um, facing um, alternative opinions, and that and that this is tied in. Now, this is a more complicated argument. It's tied in much more to the notion that we've sheltered our children a lot more, whether it's helicopter parents or whether it's playgrounds that are so safety oriented, or whether we've cut off our children from encouraging them to um, encouraging them to risk failure, for example. Uh, yeah, and so that might be all a part of this, uh, and uh, that's what. And and the final thing is what 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 uh, Heidish says in another piece he wrote about it is that what social media has begun to do is to teach us or to unlearn our ability to talk to people who have different kinds of opinion because we use. Because we use the we we use social media to reinforce our opinions, mm -hmm. and that he says is a threat to liberal democracy. Okay, so if I was a parent out there, I'd just try and figure out how to, how do I make my child more resilient. Well, yeah, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to make the liberal democracy argument with them, but I but because that's yeah, getting yeah. out there. But for sure, this concern about social media in a much more systematically researched way than we've had before. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. We've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, our guest for our uh, biweekly segment, We Call the Long View, and we'll have links to the articles that Neil mentioned on the conversation page of our website later today.
climate change conversations about ocean often involve a list of disasters, sea level rise, storm surges, hurricanes. But the ocean is also a resource when it comes to combating climate change. For instance, it's stored much of the carbon release since the Industrial Revolution. The U.S. controls more ocean area than it does land, and the Biden administration released a new plan in March that seeks to protect its ecosystems while doubling down on its climate-fighting capability. HBR Savannah Harriman Pote spoke to NOAA oceanographer Richard Spinrad about what the Ocean Climate Action Plan has in store. I have a very long title. I am the Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and the Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And how does a man with such a long title spend his time? <laughs> Reciting my title. That takes up half the time. Um, well, I work mostly back in D.C. and uh, managing a $7 billion, 12,000-person agency that has responsibility for uh, forecasts and data and observations from the surface of the sun to the bottom of the ocean. And uh, we do it with a great workforce and put out terrific products. And I understand you've also been doing quite a bit of traveling in this position. What have you been endeavoring to do with these community outreach efforts? So one of the important things that we're trying to address in the Biden-Harris administration right now is developing what we are calling a climate-ready nation, which really means understanding how climate change is impacting local communities, impacting uh, whole economic sectors, and providing the information, I call it the environmental intelligence, to make decisions about everything from building codes to agriculture to fisheries, uh, and also what kind of uh, areas are in need of conservation, especially in the marine environment. And so part of that requires uh, going around the country, around the world in some cases for conferences, but around the country to see what are the needs, especially of some of the most vulnerable communities for climate products and services. I read a, a opinion article that you wrote for the Anchorage Daily News about what you learned from community members there. And in part, you were just saying that the community members that you're speaking with, um, residents, longtime residents in Alaska, as well as indigenous folks, people of tribal nations, are very aware of climate change and very interested in being part of initiatives to conserve their land and their homes. What in particular have you found exciting about being on the ground and being able to talk to folks? The premise of your question is an interesting one, because when you look at what's going on here in Hawaii and the Pacific Islands generally, and what's going on in Alaska, arguably two very different environments, two very different states, but still both being hit very hard by climate change. Uh, so here in Hawaii, for example, we're seeing it in the form of sea level rise, ocean acidification, impacts on fisheries, uh, storm frequency and, and uh, magnitude. And what strikes me in the context of your question is that there's a lot of creativity, a lot of initiative at the local level, counties, cities, small municipalities, um, and also a lot of uh, what I would call indigenous intelligence uh, about what works in terms of responding to things like changes in sea level rise based on what communities have developed over the ages, over millennia. So you see specific knowledge about specific areas that contributes to more, um, more of the Western science that then can help provide some parts of solutions to how do we adapt? How do we uh, respond? How do we make ourselves more resilient in the face of climate change? And you referred earlier to the current administration's goal of having a climate-ready nation. As part of that goal, last month, I believe, they released the first-ever Ocean Climate Action Plan, and I understand that you had a role in putting that together. Can you introduce that to listeners? What is this document endeavoring to do? Absolutely. The uh, Ocean Climate Action Plan is in response to uh, the administration's emphasis on providing solutions to the impact of climate change, which tend to fall into two different categories. Mitigation, that is, how do we reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere? How do we make better use of renewables, reduce the use of fossil fuels, and adaptation slash resilience? And the Ocean Climate um, 
action plan makes very clear that we need to focus on a few specific things. Uh, we need solutions that are oriented towards the most, the most vulnerable communities. A lot of times that is coastal communities. Uh, but it also emphasizes the use of nature-based solutions. So historically, we might engage in what a lot of people call gray infrastructure. If you've got sea level rise, then you're going to build hardscapes. You're going to build uh, seawalls. You're going to build jetties. You're going to physically move uh, sand and, and uh, marshland around. Natural infrastructure says, well, wait a minute. What about looking at the role of mangroves? What about looking at the role of, of uh, shellfish beds as natural protectors and barriers, as well as areas where we can see biodiversity flourish, as well as areas that will capture carbon? So you get really powerful solutions when you try to build natural infrastructure, and that's a mainstay of the Ocean Climate Action Plan. I want to stay on that thread for the moment because I cover climate change here in the islands. And oftentimes when we're talking about ocean, when we're talking about water, we're talking about it as in the context of a threat of how sea level rise is going to impact and is impacting our infrastructure, as well as the livelihoods of many folks who live particularly on, in Pacific islands and Pacific nations. What I found interesting about this document is it tries to really contextualize the ocean as a resource. Can you talk a little bit about how the administration is viewing particular ocean-based solutions for a carbon-neutral future? So the concept of the climate-ready nation that I alluded to, which is part and parcel of the solutions in what we affectionately call the OCAP, the Ocean Climate Action Plan, uh, is in part based on the idea that if we have the knowledge, if we make the measurements, build better predictions and projections of how climate change will affect things like sea level rise and ocean acidification. We can actually benefit and prosper. There is an optimistic tone in that we can pre-position ourselves and make decisions now. There's a number of ways of thinking about the oceans in this context, uh, that 90% of the heat that has been uh, generated, if you will, or captured from during the, the industrial era is stored in the oceans. Obviously, a large percentage of the carbon, the excess carbon, is uh, stored in the oceans. Uh, a lot of the energy is stored in the oceans. We see that every time there's a tropical cyclone. Where do those get their energy? They get it from the oceans. So when you talk about oxygen, when you talk about carbon dioxide, when you talk about heat and energy, uh, the ocean is almost like a bank for storing a lot of these resources. And consequently, you would never think about making investments in the future without looking to the bank and what the bank can provide for you and how it can serve to store uh, resources. And the ocean obviously fulfills that role, but we've got to be very careful about how we use that bank in the sense that there are limits. We're starting to see that in ocean acidification. We're seeing parts of the ocean where we've basically put so much carbon dioxide into the system that the waters are turning sour. Are there technologies that you think are going to be really familiar to folks in just a few years, but aren't quite in people's eyes right now? I remember years ago, um, I was in Europe and I was strolling around the city I was in and happened upon a car dealership. And I looked at the sticker on the car and it talked about the carbon footprint of that particular car at a time when nobody in the United States was thinking about that. And you certainly wouldn't see that on the sticker in a, in a car in a U.S. shop. That's an example, in my opinion, of where in that case in Europe, they started to develop a new sort of technology, a new sort of jargon, a new sort of understanding. I think we are going to see that kind of thing happening here in the U.S. I think we're going to see uh, people being a little bit more aware of what their carbon footprint is, people being a little bit more aware of what uh, carbon trade-offs are when you go to the store, when you make a decision, do I buy this single-use bottle of water? And we're also going to start seeing people, if not engaging in daily discussion about it, understanding what things like marine carbon dioxide reduction means. Uh, they may not use that language. They not, may not be bantering about MCDR in a cocktail bar, but they might understand that 
by developing uh, coastal shellfish hatcheries, they're helping to draw down carbon by planting seagrass. They're helping to draw down carbon. Uh, seagrass, uh, mangroves, those are all examples of marine carbon dioxide reduction, blue carbon, if you will. And I think people are going to get a better sense. We're going to see that maybe starting first in the agriculture industry and then perhaps a little bit more into the aquaculture industry as well. But I think some of those concepts are going to start getting more attention. We used to talk about um, geoengineering. Now we talk about climate intervention. I think we're going to see people understanding more and more what that means as well. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. been my pleasure. Thank you. That was Noah's Richard Spinrod talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote about the new federal Ocean Climate Action Plan. Spinrad is in Honolulu for a conference this week. The Pacific Risk Management Ohana Gathering will focus on resiliency strategies. Well, here's a bird that everyone will likely be familiar with. It's the mina. Mina birds are everywhere, literally. They've been declared one of the world's worst invasive species. And we've got their song for you today, thanks for, uh, to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Time now for your Mono Minute. Anyone who has spent more than a day or two in Hawaii has probably noticed our mina birds. They seem to be everywhere there are people, including residential areas, parks, cities, towns, gardens, and beaches. Just about the only place you don't find them much is in our native forests. Common minas are about nine inches long and chocolate brown with a yellow bill and legs and bright yellow bare skin behind their eyes. Both sexes in minas look alike, to humans at least, and unlike many bird species, will mate for life. They can often be seen flying in pairs back to giant roost trees just before sunset, where they join hundreds of other minas in noisy congregations, perhaps exchanging information about the foraging success that day. Minas are native to Asia and were introduced to Oahu from India in the mid-1800s to control cutworms and other insects that had become bad agricultural pests. The minas were apparently successful at this, but then expanded on their own to all the other Hawaiian islands within the next few decades. While they're both intelligent and amusing to watch, they have become pests themselves in the eyes of many people, as they can be extremely noisy and dirty, particularly around roost trees and cities. Also, they've been known to play a role in spreading noxious weeds, as well as bird parasites and disease. There's even an account of them setting fire to a building with a burning cigarette. Fortunately, because they rarely enter Hawaiian forests, they don't appear to pose much of a threat to our remaining native bird species. Like other mina species, the minas we have in Hawaii can become excellent mimics of human language and can learn dozens of words if properly trained, especially from a young age. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. From our distinctive reporting on culture and the arts to our local music hosts and their curated playlists, HPR is here to uplift community voices, gain a greater understanding of our local and global communities. Your financial support ensures HPR will bring you the stories and music you rely on for months to come. Start with a $10 monthly gift to HPR. Donate now at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
bourbon, gin, and moonshine. That's the lineup at the Ko'olau Distillery in Kailua. It started with whiskey five years ago, and it just recently expanded its line and its tasting room. We paid a visit to talk to General Manager Justin Rivera. He was featured earlier this year on the Discovery Plus show Master Distiller, making a drink using pineapple mash, and it was a winner. I'd say my specialty right now is uh, this pineapple swipe that I've been working on. Pineapple swipe is a traditional spirit made by plantation workers. So we have all these pineapple skins right here. Yeah, they got a lot of great flavor in them. So we're gonna keep that. They got some nutrients and all that's going right on in there. My family came from uh, Portugal to work in the pineapple fields and the sugarcane fields. So I just figured uh, always keep grounded in your roots and keep that story strong. Now, Rivera is a retired Navy man, and he was hired by two retired Marines, Eric Dill and Ian Brooks, founders of the company. The idea for the company was actually born out of a real-life story, Marines making moonshine in a war zone tent. Uh, General Manager Justin Rivera says the company brought together folks with a love of home brewing, and thanks to a program called SkillBridge, it has helped military members transition into careers outside of the service. This business really was just kind of a labor of love of two retired Marines who in the end after a long career in the military really just wanted to make whiskey and surf. And that kind of journey with whiskey, interestingly enough, started, I believe, in Afghanistan, where Eric was deployed and some Marines surprisingly got in trouble for making alcohol in their tents. That kind of led Eric down a path where he did lots of research and really wrapping his head around the idea of people making liquor forward deployed in a tent. Him being a previous home brewer, this is the type of thing that just kind of interests all of us home brewers. In my opinion, it's frankly probably the end of the line for most home brewers. You study fermentation science, you make beer and alcohol. Why not jump just a little further and make liquor? And then you were doing beer and we're on a beer show? <laughs> yes. So I joined up with Eric and Ian as I was exiting the Navy. There's a cool program called SkillBridge where you're allowed to partner with civilian companies and the government still pays your check up to the last six months of your career. And having been a home brewer, I really found it interesting, the idea of being able to skill bridge and transition to a new career field, that being making liquor. I honestly really didn't think I'd become a distiller. I thought I was just going to make beer and maybe someday open my own brewery. However, just this amount of artistic expression that you could do in a spirit and the way it lasts is really nice. Beer is good, but oftentimes it has to be drank very fresh and liquor really lasts the test of time. What we're here in the Kotlaus, where you've got the distillery set up and the, the area for tours, but you were born in Waimanalo. For me, I'd like to think of my story here at the distillery as a homecoming story. I was born in Waimanalo, very young. We moved to Texas. Hawaii, of course, is expensive for a single parent. So we moved to Texas. I grew up down there, always wanting to come back. My mother put us through some halal and dancing. Funny enough, in Texas, that doesn't get you a lot of friends. You might get teased a little bit for dancing hula. So I haven't done that in quite a long time. <laughs> but then I joined the Navy. And in the Navy, I spent 20 years. And during that time, I traveled the world and was very lucky enough to get 12 of my 20 years here in Hawaii. With my daughters in school, they're up the road in Malamahonua, one of the best public charter schools in my opinion and we didn't want to leave the government was looking to send me to Georgia I'm sure Georgia is a fine place but it's just not Hawaii it's not home and we decided to retire and stay here we have a house on the same street my mother grew up on so literally my house my mother's house next door and my cousins and the kids play together with my little kid cousins and it's just a dream. I'm never gonna leave unless I have to. And so tell us then about, you know, how you've gone from beer to whiskey and then you folks also do gin? Yes, yes. So from the beer to whiskey, realistically, I started home brewing. I've been a home brewer about 11 years. So like I said, that skill bridge was just, it was, I'm the perfect candidate for this company, for that skill bridge. And developing into the alcohol distribution, it was just natural. Now we started with whiskey here at Ko'olau. 
that's probably not the best business model for a distillery because the clear spirits make money. Uh, if anyone's out there going to make their own distillery, I, whiskey is beautiful. There's tons of great money in bourbon, but you got to keep the bills paid, keep the lights on, and that's your vodkas, your gins. So we did that a little backwards, but Eric and Ian were still in the military when they were beginning this. So probably for the first year, uh, there was no alcohol sold. They were just making whiskey, putting it in barrels, and aging it. And that's kind of how things started here. As we grew into that role, the whiskey kept becoming more and more popular. We were able to get into Costco, which is where you're going to find a lot of our spirits now. And they're even doing some of a gin in Costco's now. So that's an awesome opportunity for people to go and pick that up. As we expanded, we needed distillers. So Eric and Ian had done everything by themselves in the very beginning years, probably up to year four. Three and four is when I start coming in. And they hired one of the employees, Robert, who's now our sales rep, and myself in Skillbridge. We had Warren, who's now in Florida. And they start handing over the reins a little bit, but with close supervision. And then luckily, recently, we hired on Olivia, who is a distiller from Philadelphia, has lots of experience with gin. So uh, we allowed her to have her creative juices flowing and make us the next spirit in our lineup and family. And it is phenomenal. It's if I could get a dollar for every time someone came into this distillery and said, I'd never liked gin, but this is good gin. I'd probably pick up the bar tab tonight between us at least, you know, because it happens quite often. And so part of the five years, you're marking five years this year, yes. later this year? Yes, we just had our five year anniversary. Okay, so you're marking five years here. What was it like during the pandemic? The pandemic? You know, it's kind of interesting because we lost a lot of tourism, but because we distribute, we kind of kept a little bit of an even keel. We didn't grow as much as we should have in our trajectory, but I think people were thirsty and, you know, locally made spirits, support local by local, obviously people wanted to do that. So I think we all became day drinkers during the pandemic. And frankly, everyone forgot what a standard pour is because, you know, we're making it at home. So. Is an interesting time where we kept kind of an even trajectory and now we're experiencing more and more growth. But the pandemic was rough with supply chain. Everyone had issues. For us was glassware and ingredients. We weren't getting the corn that we needed for our whiskey, which gave birth to a new product, which is Maheolani Moonshine. If you're familiar, Maheolani is the fourth night of the full moon cycle. It is the fullest of those nights. So. We found it very adequate for a 100 proof liquor, corn spirit, to be named Maheolani. And the company here is really great about allowing the employees to have you know, buy-in ownership. So it was put to the crew to come up with ideas for the name and the label. And I was lucky enough to get the winning entry with Maheolani. And if you know that iconic photo of the Mokes with the moon rising in between it, I love that bottle so much, it's beautiful. You were able to then, what, source some of the product here? The corn, that kind of thing? It was just kind of a very easy thing. I live in Waimanalo, right up the road from Waimanalo Feed Supply. So if you take some of that moonshiner heritage and tradition, they would make spirits with what was available. And if you don't have the right things available, you got to get creative. Now, feed corn has all that great corn flavor, but the starch isn't the best for conversion to sugar. But if you back that up with some sugar from places like Costco, you have basically a moonshine recipe, half corn, half sugar. It's gonna come across sweet and smooth because that's what corn does. And anything that you would put vodka in, I, I recommend you could take our moonshine. We make what we call a moonshine refresher, and we take pog juice, passion orange guava, a little bit of orange for garnish, some mint, and it makes just a beautiful drink. It's very popular here at the distillery. So what's the plan for Co-Allowed Distillers? In the big picture, obviously, we're just trying to grow and build our brand. Bourbon is always at our soul and heart as a distillery. Like I said, starting with only whiskey, that really shows what we were about. We really want a good whiskey and a good bourbon. The only reason we're not a full-on bourbon is just because barrels are so hard to come by and expensive. If you know anything about bourbon, it has three rules. One, must be made in America. Huzzah, we're in America. Two, it must be made predominantly of corn. Our whiskey is made 90% of corn, much akin to a Japanese whiskey. If you're a fan of that, know that you're gonna like this. Number three, it has to be aged in a virgin American white oak barrel. 
And that's where things get expensive because that's only one use for the barrel that you're having to ship in from the mainland. So we use that barrel up to three times. So the first bit of our juice is bourbon. Then we blend in second and third use of whiskeys. Then we also source some whiskey. As a small distiller, we do have to source from other larger suppliers, but we always make sure that we have our whiskey in that source also. And of course, we pick the best whiskeys to bring in. We're not going to bring in any junk here. So folks who want to come by, you folks offer tours. You know, how does this all work? Yeah, the, the tours are amazing, especially if you want to learn something. God bless the Bourbon Trail, Kentucky, all those folks out there. They have a lot of history and heritage. We couldn't do what we're doing here if it wasn't for them. But they rely a lot on history. They're going to talk about what great grandpappy did during Prohibition. They're going to talk about Uncle Cletus bootlegging that shine across the state. We don't have those type of traditions. We have our military traditions and we focus on excellence, repeatability, process. So we're very detail oriented in that regard. And we're going to basically teach you how to make liquor. Why not share, right? And that's what we're all about here. We're going to share that knowledge. And if you can make a, a good spirit at home, well, don't tell Uncle Sam, you know, that's still illegal. The liquor industry is still hoping to catch up with the beer industry where people can make beer at home. And I encourage you, talk to your senators, your legislators. Let's open up these books and get rid of these prohibition rules so that we could all enjoy in this. And so when people come here for the tours, they can do taste testing and you bottle your own. Is that is that right? <laughs> you know, we actually don't advertise about the bottling too much, but this is great because it's usually a surprise for folks. But yes, folks, uh, you do get to come in and we teach you all about the whiskey making process. And we give you the opportunity to join the Colal family and help us put some whiskey in bottles. Most of my guests have never done that. They're used to emptying bottles. So it's really fun to see the excitement in them when they get to label the bottle, fill it with liquor, put a cork on it, seal it, because everything here is done by hand and we're a very small company. So everyone's help really helps move this company forward. And it being such an experience, no one has ever really complained. They're, they're very thrilled to find out about the bottling portion. Then we follow that up with a tasting. We taste all of our spirits and we welcome you into our tasting room before or after that tour so that you could grab a cocktail, enjoy. We have a very kind of chill, loungy kind of feel to it. And I think you're really gonna like it when you come in. Well. Justin, thank you so much, and cheers. Cheers. <laughs> and that was Justin Rivera, general manager of the Ko'olau Distillery, which recently marked its fifth year in business by expanding its tasting room in Windward, Oahu. Uh, Rivera won the Moonshine Master Distiller Competition featured on the D Discovery Plus channel earlier this year. So if trading war stories over whiskey or gin or moonshine is your thing, you may want to check it out. Well, we are out of time, but up tomorrow, we hope to get reaction to the latest deal to keep Kaka'ako Makai as open space. What do you think? Weigh in. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>